What's going on everyone? I'm your host with the most Eating toast, space, ghost, coast to coast on the roast I don't know why I'm doing the most Um, yeah, I'm Clyde and you're tuned into Drone Encoded The podcast where I nerd the hell out about animated media of all kinds Deep diving into a range of specific topics, you know Shows, movies, directors, characters, fan theories Animation, techniques, studios, whatever man, anything goes. Today we're gonna talk about Don Hertzfeld's trilogy of animated shorts, World of Tomorrow. But before we get into that, I just want to pledge my support for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. A union for TV, stage, and film crews as they look to be going on, um, going on strike soon as negotiations for better rest periods, wages, increased pension and healthcare contributions stall. With a strike vote taking place sometime in early October, I'm not sure if it's taking place like today or yesterday, or a bit later in the like next in the coming days but anyway the crews behind the scenes that make the films and shows that we love take are much too overlooked and deserve so much more than they've been given especially given the increased demand on them as films and shows become more and more complicated to make and the revenues these films rake in so I'm gonna give you guys a bit of background on Don Hertzfeld, a bit of a bit about the trilogy's development, a rundown on the synopses or plots of each episode, then discuss the animation and sound before we get into what'll probably be the bulk of this episode's deep dive, the themes and philosophy. Oh, I think I tapped the mic there, sorry about that. There will be heavy spoilers and I urge you all to go to Vimeo and rent the trilogy. They're like each three dollars or something and genuinely incredibly worth the money. There's there's less savory means of seeing the first two shorts but to my knowledge the third and best of the three is just completely unavailable on the seven seas. I, I don't know what deal he has with the Swedish pirate overlords, but it's working. But I can't stress enough how wonderful it is, how worth the money it is. The first one is Oscar nominated and probably the, wor- <laughs> the worst one, that, that sounds wrong to say, least amazing one, that, that feels more right. Um, so yeah, let's get into some background on Don. So Don Hertzfeld is an anima- uh, oh, an independent animator. I tried to fuse those words together there. He's an independent animator and animation director. And David Guetta lookalike. Who almost completely works alone. And basically works exclusively on short films. Um... Except that really weird Simpsons couch gag he did where he mostly critiques the Simpsons becoming hollowed out and incredibly unsettling. No, like, 
legit legit disturbing caricatures of themselves to the point that they're just catchphrase spouting amorphous blobs he splices in a really heartfelt moment or two when that when contrasted with the absurdist weirdness preceding it or surrounding it actually felt legitimately beautiful and a little heartbreaking which is kind of a hallmark of his latest storytelling He's known for works like The Meaning of Life, uh, a short following the evolution of humans from blobs to present day to millions of years into the future, going through like all kinds of forms, but still being petty, lost, and angry as ever, then concluding with two deep future humans talking about the meaning of life on the shore, and the older looking one just gets really pissed off at the question like oh meaning of life get out of here with that nonsense meaning of life meaning of life come on meaning of life please and there's also the academy award nominated rejected about a series of rejected advertisements for a fake tv channel and bean curd company or something that become more and more viscerally gross and disturbing before descending into fourth wall breaking, very cleverly animated serial anarchy. His art style is based on very simplistic, crudely hand-drawn characters, mostly stick figures. Even in his early work, his animation techniques, almost entirely stop motion, drawn on white paper, and not done on a computer at all until the first of the trilogy we're talking about today. Um, are often brilliantly experimental and produce stirring results, giving it this demented flipbook come to life quality. His storytelling grew with most every work, from basically plotless vignettes coming together to try to fight their way out of the pages to a vague look into the nature of humans as a species and the pointlessness of thinking there's a meaning to it all, to the heartbreaking yet powerfully hopeful look into the hardships of living with a decaying mind that was his first and so far only feature-length movie at such a beautiful day. Though he'd really stitched three short films together to make it. And also, in between the last two at such a beautiful day shorts, there was Wisdom Teeth, which was a return to his earlier gruesome physical comedy dark humor without much deeper meaning but i think he just wanted to do something like silly and fun because of how heavy it's such a beautiful day got like it's it's really dark and depressing at some parts does have very beautiful (laughs) hopeful moments beautiful is in the title (laughs) haha but yeah. Anyway, he hadn't at any point lost his penchant for offbeat humor through his storytelling evolution and actually uses it very successfully to counterpoint his philosophical sort of underpinnings, which is something you see a lot of in World of Tomorrow. Let's get into the plot, scissors, the synopsis sees. A four-year-old girl in a white room named Emily in the first episode called just World of Tomorrow 
who is played by um, Don Hertzfeld's niece, Winona May, receives a transmission from 227 years into the future, I think, I think that's right, of her adult third-generation clone, played by Julia Potts, a fellow animator that you might know as the creator of Summer Camp Island and for her work on Adventure Time's last two seasons. She voices all the adult versions of Emily in the trilogy. Clone Emily explains that Emily Prime explains to Emily Prime, sorry, that humans will come to attempt immortality through the process of cloning and consciousness transference. There's this great little bit where she's like, the cloning process is going great. There's very few signs of mental deterioration. And then her eye just like twitches a lot. It's it's <laughs> it's hilarious. She details several other ways people with less means attempt to live on forever, including uploading their consciousness into a little black cube where they can get all the latest shows and books. Hold on. And and stretching the skin of their dead relatives face over an animatronic robot to feel like they're still there. Uh, that that's <laughs> Okay, hold on. That that's that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It's it's so messed up. I I'm, I'm never getting over it. <sighs> okay, I'm fine. Um Emily's grandfather actually gets put into one of the black cubes and writes back frequently and I have to read one of his poems out because it's just it's just incredible. Okay, it goes as um let me just pull it up quickly. Oh oh god. Oh god. Oh god. Oh my God, Holy Mother of God, Oh, 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 oh God. So, so, sorry, that was right into the mic. So, uh, that's, that's what, that's what living in the black cube is like. It doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh... Anyway, Clone Emily explains that the experimental time travel methodology whereby she's contacting Emily Prime and the dangerous nature of physical time travel and how even slight miscalculations can send people tens of thousands of years into the past and or place them in the middle of outer space or crash them beneath the ground which she promptly uses to bring Emily Prime to her time. <laughs> that rhymed. Uh, yeah, uh, it does not seem like clone Emily has much empathy, especially not with this little girl who she could have easily crushed under like the weight of wherever. Anyway, Emily Prime appears in this interactive virtual reality neural network thing that clone Emily refers to as the outer net 
and then shows Emily Prime some of her memories. First is from Clone Emily's childhood of a controversial installation art piece of a human named David, cloned without the brain in a stasis in a stasis tube thing where viewers watched as he aged in real time. She then shows her memories of her jobs and loves on the moon and outer space, including her romantic relationship with a literal rock, like like a boulder, like like she was basically donkey in the in, in Shrek. Like checking out that boulder. That is a nice boulder. I like that boulder. Let me kiss that boulder. Yeah. Um, also, the the whole art inst- installation art piece thing of a human being, very human zoo vibes. But I feel I feel like I feel like some pretentious artist of the future would definitely do that if like clone technology was commercially available, and they'll be like. It's about the ephemeral nature of you know? I, I don't know why I did a French accent. Okay. Moving on from that digression. More memories show clone Emily returning to Earth and opening up an art gallery for, of anonymous memories where she meets her husband, David, a clone from the same prime as the boy with the stasis tube. Only with half, only with a brain. I almost said half a brain. <laughs> uh, the marriage was fulfilling yet brief, as he suddenly passed away of an aneurysm, and she contemplates the short time together with a lot of sadness. The last memory that she shows Emily Prime reveals that the world is ending because of an unstoppable collision of meteors in about 60 days and explains that she brought Emily to her time to retrieve a memory that she's forgotten of her walking with her mother to comfort her in her last days. After this, she zaps Emily Prime away again. There's another really great bit right at the end of the, the episode which I don't want to spoil for anyone, but it's the best part of the whole thing to me. The second episode, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts, um, has a five-year-old Emily Prime visited by Emily Six, who's an incomplete backup copy of her third-generation clone, who was next in line to be Emily before the destruction of both Earth and clone Emily from the previous episode which rendered her an obsolete drive, storage drive with no purpose, in her own words, I guess. She believes that uploading the consciousness of this version of Emily would be the next best thing to receiving Emily's, uh, Emily, third generation clone Emily's brain. So, brought a partially broken consciousness merging neural network onto a time travel backpack. She warns Emily Prime that this might delete part of her mind, and she's like, no problem. <laughs> I love kids. 
when when the procedure begins, they're transported to Emily Six's mind, where Emily Prime meets a child version of Six and talks about Six's bracelet, which was given to her by her sister Felicia, in a very mind-jumbled sequence that's pretty indicative of the strangeness of the consciousness and how the neural network and um, Emily Six's mind is kind of wonky. Prime is transported to the bog of realism where adult six is, along with many buried shiny balls of light, which are, I think, called glimmers of hope, yeah, that are manifestations of forgotten or unaccomplished hopes and dreams, like a dream of being a ballerina in the Nutcracker. There's this really funny bit where they find a piano and Six says that she's an excellent pianist and studied it for years. But when she plays it, it's just this horrible sounding smash of keys. It's just like a cacophony of sounds. And she realizes that she must have only inherited these memories of playing the piano from another Emily. And then goes, at least I'm still a world-class violinist. And... uh, Emily Prime just looks off to the side like, um, sure, Jan. They they happen upon the quote-unquote valley of buried memories where if you taste the shards that's around there, you can view and experience memories. Six tells Prime not to think of a baby dinosaur later at this point. And they... And yeah, the Emilys view a few memories of six and a few other backup clones, Emily four and seven, engaging in memory tourism, which is them going back in time and very intrusively watching Emily go about her business, like a more annoying and advanced physical version of the view screens from the first episode which I don't think I explained, but the view screens is just people looking at these big screens and seeing random bits of the past through them in the light impressions on subatomic particles or something like that. I, I don't exactly remember. They also view a memory of Felicia in a stasis tube on a red planet, and this is where Six reveals that Felicia was another backup of Emily, Emily Five, which who was later turned into a storage drive for a deceased wealthy family's memories. <sighs> Man. And yeah, I, I don't like to think about that. And that they were best friends in their youth, but they weren't allowed to be around each other very often. They didn't want to both be called Emily, so secretly decided that one would be called Felicia and traded ID bracelets so they'd always have a piece of the other with them. Which is very sweet. I like that a lot. Um, Six can't remember where this planet that Felicia is stasized on, stasized on is and that causes her mind to start to crumble a little and she starts thinking that Emily Prime is Felicia and that the reason that she's here is to bring her back to the future with her and Emily Prime is just like no I think not I I can't do the accent it's like 
very Peppa Pig. While her mind is crumbling, she tells Prime about um, about a memory she has of a man with a hairstyle that looked like he'd quote-unquote seriously misinterpreted himself, which is such a hilarious thing to say. And also about how he used a time travel service, but by some accident they didn't put a destination time in, and he was effectively sent nowhere. She wonders what dimension um, he was sent to and whether he's still alive and if he raised his destination on purpose. They're transported to Six's mind's logic center and Six is all, we need to get out of here because if we think of something illogical, my mind will collapse. Uh, she didn't say it like that. I just, I'm not a voice actor. Um also a reminder that Emily Prime is like five years old so yeah you you know how that turns out Prime manages to transport them to her mind where six begins to disappear as the consciousness merging process nears its completion and her original mind has collapsed she contemplates her mind's death as she goes and Prime gives her a ticker to the Nutcracker to console her. Six starts dancing to one of the Nutcracker suites in this really, really stunning, fluidly animated Scorsese-esque, like million frames per second bit of animation that really catches you off guard with how simple and stick people the movements have been till now. And when the process is complete, they're transported back to the real world and the other backups that Emily Six um, memory toured with drag her back to the future, unaware that she has Emily Prime's mind now. Or maybe they are aware. I'm not quite clear on that, actually. Sorry, I think I tapped the mic there. The final episode is a lot twistier than the first two and probably the most story-like narrative Don has ever told. But even it's such a beautiful day having this series of somewhat delated vignettes sort of quality to it that the other two episodes also have a lot of with them taking place in memories mostly. David Prime is on a neural network shopping site when we enter this episode and he's interrupted by a transmission from Emily 9. Emily 9 had traveled to David when he was a boy and uploaded the transmission and an encrypted message to his brain, both of which he'd only be able to access when he was the appropriate age, which is now buying gills for his face on a neural network. The, this transmission has Emily Nine telling David Prime about how his future clone and Emily's future clone would fall in love and that David's um, clone would die suddenly and Emily would harvest his memories. Nine believes that she's the only Emily to have inherited these memories and she often visits these memories in her sleep, like his memory of nearly drowning as a teenager. And she confesses to looking forward to those to those memories when she goes to sleep and drowning together with him. 
which is a pretty macabre thing to admit, but also very weirdly sweet. She reveals the encrypted message contains instructions to find these memories, which she had to hide painstakingly because leaving future technology in the past is a major crime in her time. He begins decrypting the message, but it's such a large file that he has to delete several advanced skills that he'd learned in his life just to get the coordinates to the planet that it's on. And when he arrives to the smiling planet, he keeps decrypting the messages further and further for more instructions and has to delete more and more basic skills along the way just to have space for this decryption. Also, his brain is filled with pop-up ads. Uh, because it was the only way Emily could afford to encrypt the message and that's that's just so funny he goes through quite a few trials and a really long trek to get to the extra package with additional directions and then to the Zorg bot with David's memories some of them include Emily telling him he has to walk through a tunnel with these alien worms that spit a neurotoxin, which just a drop of can cause fits of screaming and mental deterioration. And when he walks into the tunnel, it's just absolutely lined with them top to bottom, just showering the cage with this toxin. And he spends the rest of the journey just screaming randomly. He also sees the planet littered with corpses of other Davids, just a sea of Davids all over, like from other timelines and times, who received fragments of this message and died, and she just blurs them out to help David not panic. Along the journey, she tells him about how 72 years from his time, um, human cloning will be commerci commercially available and that two backup clones are made for each clone generation and that his fourth backup clone will, after time travel is invented, become one of the secret agents that prevent time paradoxes from occurring, called cleaners. These cleaners have the ability to roam a realm between the ticks of the clock, like the sort of shadow realm of time and sometimes do ranges of things like work on building entire cities in what looks like an instant to carrying out secret assassinations. David Four basically abandons his post and becomes obsessed with watching the future David clone and his wife, the future Emily clone, and he becomes consumed with jealousy and plans to assassinate the future David clone to take his place in the timeline. A plan only known because the David he is based on and lives with read his diary. That is just... Why would you write that in your diary, David, for? What is wrong with you? But this obviously explains David's future clone dying suddenly, but also the third generation clone puts himself in a stasis for a century in hopes of living to a time where in-between time tech is more easily creatable after failing to make his own bootleg version of it but suffers mental deterioration in the stasis and 
puts a younger brainless clone of himself in an exhibit, becoming the artist described in episode 1. He also has this absolutely wild looking haircut that makes me think he's also the man who time traveled to nowhere. Maybe he thought that that'd be a way to get to the in-between time zone thing? Anyway, uh, David Prime eventually recovers the Zorg pot. The Zorg bot? Zorg pot. Maybe it's a pot too, I don't know. And reinstalls a lot of his basic skills, like walking. He, 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 he deleted walking. And he tries to open it to retrieve the memories, but the, the Zorgbot is rusty and greatly deteriorated and doesn't work. So over a century later, David Prime, who's now an old man, finds out that the Zorgbot company has a repair service and fixes it up and now knows the last known location of David Four. And after cloning himself, him and his two backups continue the third generation clone's work on creating his own in-between time technology. They perfect it and he goes to stop the fourth generation clone's assassination. But you know that episode of Steven Universe where he gets that time orb and a bunch of Stevens keep coming back to stop the previous Stevens from stopping 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 the previous Stevens? Yeah, that. That happens. It ends with David 2, the first backup copy of the David clone, or the second, yeah, surviving and carrying out the original assassination of Emily's husband. He then travels back to his own time, clones himself to create the third generation David clone, then uses the old Zorgbot to find out where and when to teleport to to find Emily Nine, who greets him very friendlily. Friendlily. Friend, friendlily. That's a funny word. Okay, so I'm going to talk a bit about the production and creation of it now. Ooh, sorry, I tapped the mic there. Um, following the success of It's Such a Beautiful Day, Don Hertzfeld felt that he had contributed all he could to stop motion filmmaking and wanted to attempt something different. This drove his decision to switch to digital animation for the first time. Now he'd steered clear of sci-fi in general, being um, afraid of being boxed in by the genre elements of it, um, believing that focusing on spe specific genres usually means treading familiar territory, but came up with a loose concept that he was really compelled by. He hadn't conceived World of Tomorrow as a trilogy when he was working on the first one. In fact, the concept was kept pretty loose till very late on. You see, he wanted the child Emily to feel real and unforced and to mimic the feeling of actually talking to a four-year-old child. And, you know, the way that they sort of listen but also are not listening at all and the way they're always reacting in awe of things so very distracted so to this end he um, recorded his then four-year-old niece Winona May during a Christmas holiday with his family and as they were drawing together and playing with Play-Doh and it is very unscripted 
basically building the plot around a lot of what she said. He decided that doing a sci-fi short would be the perfect chance to finally do digital animation, having used traditional hand-drawn stop-motion videos and at most multiple exposure and trick photography for some of his more kaleidoscopic works up until this point. He hadn't even drawn on a tablet before at all before he started working on the first World of Tomorrow short. And about two weeks into animating the short, he received the call from the Simpsons staff to do the couch gag for season 26's premiere. I still can't believe there's been so many seasons of the Simpsons. And he was working on both at the same time. World of Tomorrow would go on to earn Don Hertzfeld his second Oscar nomination. And he wasn't hesitant to do a second short, but wanted to see what he could come up with and recorded his niece around Christmas with his family again the year after. But he found a lot more difficulty in using her dialogue this time because she'd grown up a bit and was less reactive and was a lot of the time the one directing him in their conversations. You know, much less one-liners and more paragraphs of cute exposition. No more, ooh, look, a square. And now it's, okay, you're going to be the Triangle King and we're going to ride the baby dinosaurs to Square Mountain to find the bracelet of the Star Hat people, which is obviously a lot harder to work into a script. And I think that played a little into the short taking a bit longer to make than the first, but... He found a really spectacular way to work her into the script, letting Emily Prime actually have more of a say in things and taking us into Emily Prime's mind where obviously she's the one dictating things. The Burden of Other People's Thoughts came out in 2017 and was nominated for a fair few awards but kinda did not win any. The third episode, The Absent Destinations of David Prime, is a departure from the Emily Prime and adult Emily formula. Maybe his niece kind of started expecting that she was being recorded when Uncle Don was around. Maybe it was just a bit harder to use her dialogue because she'd have been eight at the time and basically a fully self-aware person. Knowing Don's work though, he probably just wanted to do... Not the same thing again. And filling in the gaps of a pretty ancillary character in the first episode and making him the protagonist was a a fairly clever move, but the twistiness of this plot is unlike anything else Don has ever done. He took two years to make it and he had loads of plans to go big with the distribution of this third one. Put it out in theaters, award circuits, streaming circuit, streaming services. But the deals fell through one after the other because, well, it came out in late 2020. And I don't know if you heard about this thing called COVID-19, but it made things very difficult for, you know, theaters. So yeah, thanks to that, it was only really available on Vimeo. Although they are putting together a Blu-ray release of all three shorts, if you're more interested in that. There should be some pretty fun rarities in there. 
Don Jingli takes those kinds of things pretty seriously. Though, I actually think the Blu-ray release might even be out already. Also, I've been calling it a trilogy because there's three of them, but there are plans to do at least another two World of Tomorrow shorts. He might have started work on the fourth one already. He's called this work his um, science fiction mind dump of sorts in the past, so we can expect any sci-fi stuff ideas he comes up with to be put into this universe. Now onto the animation and the sound. Um, one of the most consistent things in Don Hertzfeld's work, besides his kind of twisted sense of humor and stick figures, is his love for classical soundtracks, and he uses it to greater effect in this trilogy than ever almost, especially in the second episode. Except maybe the um, meaning of life where the whole short's cadence rests on this really bombastic baroque um i think baroque and I, I, I might just be saying things like there's a really bombastic piece of classical music i forget which one but it was definitely a very popular piece i think it was tchaikovsky but i'm not 100 percent sure don't quote me on that the the only music that wasn't a classical piece from one of his shorts that I can even think of is from the end of Lily and Jim. And that was still a pretty classical sounding piano piece that just happened to have been made modernly. Uh, it's interesting how it sort of counterpoints the really futuristic and often surreal imagery of the series of shorts though. Like the old old-timey sounds and the futuristicness of the space. It's very Kubricky. Don's animation has always veered towards experimental, even near the end of his uh, stop-motion photography era, with the meaning of life and it's such a beautiful day trilogy using optical light effects, multiple exposure and trick photography and even had Don literally inventing new techniques because he wanted to do all of it without the assistance of a computer. His jump to digital enabled his animation, especially of his backgrounds, to be a lot more fluid, but no less experimental with the fact... with um, In fact, a lot of the films takes place inside of neural networks, so basically the brain allowed him to get very, very trippy. Like, with the use of really vibrant, constantly shifting geometric shapes and often highly contrasted, muted aspects flowing into almost neon-colored blues and oranges and reds. Trees that instead of leaves have but appear to be fire that has a slow moving sort of flowing flame there's a lot of really weird imagery a lot of fun abstract art looking stuff in the background a lot of the imagery is also a lot more textured and textural than anything he'd ever done before 
and the shifting landscapes of the mind and the outer net is like they're really gorgeously mesmerizingly fluid. Like besides Emily Prime's white room, which is a very clever way to lull people into thinking the film is gonna look like his earlier work. A lot of the quote unquote real locations, like the red planet that Felicia is on, or the mining planet that David has to trek through, are also startlingly surreal and like stirringly colorized and drawn. In fact, the only thing that even hints at simplicity really is the character design, stick figures, and maybe the architecture of the buildings, though that's more the sleek simplicity that we associate with sci-fi and not the crudest simplicity of the stick figures. And the contrast of this crudeness and the fluidity of movement and the gorgeous, wondrously, vividly abstract art of the settings is incredibly visually interesting honestly and kind of mirrors the contrast between the um, kind of the really crude humor and the heaviness of the themes and that's a perfect transition into the next topic I actually didn't mean to do that but yeah let's jump into the themes right away Uh, I think there's quite a few shades of what it means to learn to love. With David Prime deleting parts of himself, and it ties the first and third films of the series together in this way. You see, the reason David Prime deletes parts of himself is to make room for Emily Nine's thoughts and directions. And Emily is basically this idealized thing to him, not really a full person, until he makes space for her in his mind and she tells him about herself. And I think that says something really powerful about what it means to learn to love. You see it in the third generation Emily clone in episode one also, as when she's shows when she shows Emily Prime her memories, you see she first falls in love with a rock, which is not even a relationship really. A rock can't reciprocate anything. Like You're just projecting desires onto it. She later falls in love with a space creature thing, I don't know really, named Simon. I think it was on the moon, it might have been outer space, but it was on one of the two, which was basically a relation, which was barely a relationship. It just spoke gibberish and followed her wherever she went like a pet but it was closer to a relationship than a rock and she broke poor simon's heart when she left him to return to earth shame when she meets her actual like husband and great love david who was also a clone that exhibited signs of mental deterioration but still very much a person like she said, they loved each other like they were originals. And I think these relationships very clearly reflect a journey in learning how to love, with the forming more and more real and equal connections and working at these relationships. 
It's also worth noting that Simon's sadness is reflective of how we almost all will at some point hurt a person we once deeply cared about and that it's sometimes still the right thing to do. And with the things that David goes through, working hard and doing things like deleting skills and putting himself in stasis for over a century in order to create a world where he and Emily can be together, it speaks very directly to the idea that love takes a lot of sacrifice and effort and that doing that is a no-brainer when you feel like it's worth it. The second film also has a bit of this journey of understanding what it means to love and accept someone, but it focuses more on how to love yourself. Emily Six tells little Emily about um, how difficult the life that she's led has been as a warning to her because there might be things that Prime wouldn't like to see. But Prime is just a kid fascinated by anything that looks weird. So I think Emily Six, who, who was who was actually afraid, uh, yeah, I think it was her who was afraid of seeing what is in her mind, you know? Like, we don't like being confronted with our deepest, darkest fears. And while she's recounting a scattered ass- assortment of um, memories to Emily Prime, she comes to the realization that she no longer wants to be copied and that innocence, the innocent state of youth that she desired from Prime is not an accomplishment. And she seemed to have come to terms with and accepted herself from there on. But also the very fact that she went back in time to replace her mind with that of a child version of herself did suggest that before this she was deeply self-loathing. She straight up even says that she doesn't have a purpose and resents it, which pretty clearly shows that to me. But when she is relieved of the burden of other people's thoughts, as it were, and their hopes and dreams, and as the process of overwriting her mind with Emily's, um, with the younger Emily's, draws to a clone, She seems to be overcome with sadness about her current self being let go and and remarks that she's glad that she was alive at the same time as her sister Felicia, seemingly now viewing her memories, good and bad, as experiences that shaped who she is, you know? They're a mess, but they're my mess. You know, that type of thing. Which is a very pure but realistic kind of self-love I think and then her mind gets overwritten (laughs) I think she was not only afraid of being controlled by confronted by the traumas and the broken dreams that she buried but how fractured her mind had become through no fault of her own And that's something that pops up a lot in the series and feels kind of like a leftover from previous works. Like, I mean, it's such a beautiful day specifically. The deterioration of the mind and coping with it. Boom. Another good transition. 
But it also seems to consider technology's role in our mental states and behavior and living conditions too. We live in a time where you don't have to just be angry at your next door neighbor or boss or the car in front of you on your drive to work, but like a third of humanity at any point in the day that you log onto Twitter or read TikTok comments or go onto Facebook. We spend so much time being mad at people we've never met now and I feel like it's fair to say that in our pursuit of greater connectivity to the world at large, we've become a bit more combative and defensive in everyday life. This future displays a more extreme version of that where humanity's desire to prolong our lives through cloning or that creepy black box that has resulted in a decreased quality of it. And the Emily backups had several emotional responses that developed pretty weirdly. Like, I think that's fair to say. Like, the inability to understand when they're intruding on original recipe Emily as their memory tour, or third-generation Emily's clone seemingly unaffected by her grandfather, clearly experiencing immense trauma in that little back black cube, or Emily Nine thinking simply blurring out the David corpses littering the planet would be enough to not traumatize David Prime. Emily Six straight up even says or screams, Sometimes I have trouble regulating my emotions. I, I did that not good. We also see different versions of David undergo mental deterioration in a variety of ways, with David 4 fixating on and being driven insane by jealousy, and the um, clone David 4 is based on putting himself in stasis for a century, but losing himself in the process and possibly sending himself to nowhere in time, possibly. Also, David Prime very literally deletes more and more basic skills from his mind, purposefully causing himself to mentally deteriorate. Then there's the space worms in the tunnel that bathed him in the neurotoxin that makes him scream all the time. A lot of this feels like sacrifices that we make to broaden what we can experience in a lifetime which mirrors social media for sure with us interacting with more people on it than we were ever probably ever cognitively designed to. But I think it also possibly exposes an anxiety of Don Hertzfeld, maybe. Like, I don't want to impose, like I stress might have had about his switch to digital. You see, stop-motion, in-camera edited stuff had a very distinct personality to it, and I think it's possible that he might have been worried about losing a piece of that personality in exchange for being able to do a lot more and doing it a lot faster by going digital. But I doubt if it was a worry that he meant the film's preoccupation with people losing pieces of themselves in exchange for doing more to be a parallel to that but more a subconscious thing, or, or maybe just a more general observation about society. And the clones sort of become a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of the original, losing pieces of themselves along the way, and becoming more detached and distorted from the original. 
And a lot of this plays out in terms of jumbled or forgotten memories. Which is the perfect little segue into the next theme. Ooh, I'm really killing it with these transitions, guys. Um, because, yeah, something else that pretty frequently uh, shows up in this is a deep focus on memory, especially nostalgia. I think it's even fair to call it the main focus of the series so far. The the first of the trilogy is about third generation Emily looking to retrieve a memory that was dear to her that she can't recall anymore in order to live out her last days before the earth explodes in the comfort of nostalgia. And she uses retrieving it as a chance to show her past self some of these other nostalgic memories. The second episode is tinged with this desire to forget bad memories as Emily Six wanted to replace her consciousness with young Emily Primes. And like I mentioned before, um, explains before they enter the mindscape that it might be a very scary place because she's been through a lot of trauma. And while they're licking memory shards to view them, she also is very careful to explain to Emily that not that she shouldn't view these memories for too long because it's easy to get lost in them. And I think she's speaking from experience here because she seems to dwell on memories that aren't her own, but of um, other Emily's gone by so much that she struggles to keep track of which she actually experienced. And almost as if to just plaster the point of this episode onto the end when Emily 6 is being taken away by 4 and 7, they're all like, come along, no use living in the past and all that. Emily 3's first half is uh, Emily 3, episode 3. I've been saying Emily so much, it's all I can say anymore. Episode 3. <laughs> I'm sorry. Episode 3's first half is a perilous journey to retrieve new memories that David sacrifices old memories in order to find. Which to me sort of feels a bit like a shorthanded way of showing the way that as time goes on, we forget things that feel important to us at the time and replace them with new loves and losses. And the latter half of that episode is about using the experiences from those memories to try to stop a bad memory from happening. It hangs very heavily on a what-if situation very clearly about desperately trying to correct the deep regret that was being dwelled on to the point of obsession and being lost in it. And the resolution of the plot seems to reinforce the idea of what was lost not being something that you can get back. And with David too instead choosing to create a new time of memories with Emily Nine. Also, I'm going to veer off a bit on the side here, like completely move away for a second, because I kind of think that Emily and Nine sent David those future memories to put in motion that Mexican standoff of David's on purpose. I'm basing it mostly on the way that Emily Nine seems to sort of expect David too to show up in the film's last shot, but I think there's a decent case for it. The goal, she tells him, is to stop the, the assassination 
of the fourth generation um, David clone by David Four, but the cleaners would never have allowed that level of time paradox since um, from Emily Lyne's perspective that event had already happened and was decades into the past. So a David traveling to her present would be the next best thing. But if she told David that straight up, there was a very strong chance that a countless number of Davids would have popped up in her crib shooting each other, you know, doing the Mexican standoff there. I mean, I, I don't know if my, th- my theory is right at all, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. Um, so yeah, like I was saying before that digression, a lot of the series of shorts seem to be about the allure of and futility of nostalgia. Don seems to be telling us to be more present in the now. Actually, scratch that, he straight up says it several times in the first two forms. Most beautifully, when third generation Emily ends her visit with Emily Prime by... Um, Okay, let me actually pull up the quote. I want to say it verbatim. Uh, She says, Do not lose time on daily trivialities. Do not dwell on petty detail. For all these things melt away and drift apart within the obscure traffic of time. Live well and live broadly. You are alive and living now. Now is the envy of all of the dead. But a lot of the show's technology seems to show us just how much that the rich understand that the past is the envy of all of the living. There's a lot about the commodification of memories and therefore nostalgia in this trilogy. The series hammers home the class divide that still exists in the future a lot with the rich and upper middle class the only ones able to afford cloning technology, while poorer people have to resort to stretching the skin of their dead relatives over an animatronic robot just to feel like they're still there. I'm never getting over that, guys. I'm never getting over that. That is such a twisted thing to say. Okay, let, let, let me just move on from that before I dwell on it. Uh, they... The very wealthy are also the only people who can afford to get off planet safely when the earth blows up, many people resorting to low budget time travel. If you have money, you can use view screens to watch random memories of the past and people are so drawn to them that a lot of the more recent views, view screen captures are just of other people looking at view screens. Cloning technology itself is a commodification of memory because it's not just cloning but memory transference. There's this idea that probably has quite a bit of merit that we are our memories and experiences and without them we're just a blank slate. I'm paraphrasing but Don Hertzfeld has said something along the lines of um, if someone told you you could live for another 200 years You'd probably be into it, but if they said it had come at the cost of resetting you, most people would be a lot less inclined, and that says a lot about how people view memory. 
People in this time are obsessed with keeping their memories alive by any means necessary. Shooting your consciousness into space, becoming one with the safe oblivion of the outer net. If you're rich enough, you can even store your memories into other people's clones in case something happens to your clones, like was done to Felicia. Which is so thoroughly messed up, man. And honestly, this seems pretty realistic. We're all constantly being convinced that the only way our existence matters is if we make a mark in the world and have our memory live on. So a society... As a society, we'd probably jump at the chance to have our memories live on beyond our bodies. And as for the commodification of nostalgia, that's very clearly already happening. And hold on just a second. Yeah, that's very clearly already happening. And the direction it's going in is that it's happening more and more often. I mean, every movie these days is a remake of a remake or a sequel of a prequel of a sequel or an adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation. And even when it's not, it profits off of 90s and 80s nostalgia heavily or is highly referential. Just... Just like the dominant strain of humor has become, like nostalgia's big, big business. It's always been, but the frequency is just like an exponential graph going straight up these days. It's mostly confined to entertainment and design for now, but you know, eventually technology will catch up to our desires, and that, along with the the universe of the show being insistent on reminding us that the poor still live in a vilely dystopian capitalistic squalor makes this universe feel eerily inevitable. You know what else is inevitable? Spooky season. Okay, that segue was less good, but I've come to the end of this episode because I've come to the end of my brainstem and need to think about anything other than the horrific continued descent into black mirror style dystopia that our society is constantly collapsing into. Yeah, so spooky season is very special to me. I'm I'm a big genre enthusiast and horror has been like has had a special place in my heart ever since I sneak watched Nightmare in Elm Street when I was like five or six. Spooky Season has a lot of um, absolutely great classic animated films that I could focus on for my next episode, but I'm probably gonna be talking about one of the best miniseries I have ever seen, the absolute classic that is Over the Garden Wall, and how it's an allegory for the first part of the Divine Comedy Trilogy, Dante's Inferno. And no, the irony of it being a highly referential work is not lost on me, but what can I say, man, I'm a surf to my senses. Um, what else? Yeah, follow me on DNQ Podcast on Twitter for updates and um, join my Patreon. Yeah. 
My Patreon should be in the description. And that's about it. This has been Drone Quoted, guys. Peace.